we began a teaching series a couple of weeks ago on the subject of church, um, so not last week, but the week before, and we said we'd call this series Life Together. And in this series, we're going to be thinking about becoming the church that God wants us to be. Part one of our series, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we asked a very fundamental question. Uh, what's church for? And we thought about that for a moment, and we came up, um, if you remember, we came up with a list of answers, and they're quite common answers to this question. Um, you might recognize your answer or a couple of, of your primary ideas up there in the screen. What we said a couple of weeks ago is that while these things are all very good, it, it seems quite a, it seems not ideal that as a church we couldn't agree what the purpose of the church is. If we're running with a long list of answers to the question, you know, what's it all about? What's the point? What's the purpose? Uh, then it seems we're, we're not likely to succeed in living out God's purposes for us if we don't know what they are. Last time when we were thinking about these things, we turned to the Bible to some of the big turning points in the story of God and his dealings with his people. If you remember, we looked at Abraham. We listened in on what God said to his people through Moses. We looked at Isaiah's beautiful God-given visions. And we thought about Jesus and the life that he shared with his disciples. And whenever we looked at all those things and we brought them together, we condensed them into this simple summary statement of God's purposes for his people. We said that the, the church is to bless the world by following Jesus Christ and allowing his beauty to attract people to him. That's where we got to when we were thinking about this stuff a fortnight ago. I wonder what you think about that um, that statement on the screen there. I'm going to guess that at least some of us find it really exciting. I mean, imagine if, if the church was like that, if the beauty of Jesus Christ really was evident in us. Imagine the impact that we would have on the community around us if, if we were able to somehow, under God, pull all this off. So, so one response to this is to say, wow, that's, that's really exciting. What, what a brilliant vision for a church to have. Uh, another way in which this might be affecting you, I, I don't know, is, is to say that you find this incredibly daunting. Um, this vision just seems too big. It's, it's been gathered together from the whole of the Bible. It, it just seems sort of step with the, the church life we've experienced so far. We can't imagine that this would ever be the case, that we're, we're daunted by this vision. Somebody else might say, well, theory's great, but how does that work in everyday life? What would that look like on the ground? Well, that's what we're going to try and think about for a few minutes this morning. Um, how do we do this? How do we live out God's purposes for us? Please open again Titus with me. We read a few verses from Titus. If you turn to page 1198, um, you'll, you'll see that's where the book of Titus starts. We're going to use this this morning, the whole book, as a, a very brief case study into how to live out the purposes of God in time and space. 
I'll tell you quickly why I've chosen the book of Titus. Titus, along with Timothy, was one of Paul's apprentice uh, church planter ministers, whatever we want to call them. So what Paul often did was he established a community, but then he would leave somebody else to look after it. And that's what he's doing here in this letter to Titus. Paul has established a, a small Jesus community on the island of Crete, and he's leaving Titus there to look after it. Now, the thing you've got to know about Crete, just in case we imagine that the world of, of those days was somehow a, a really easy place to reach for Christ, Crete was a pretty grim place by all accounts. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 12, Paul tells us that one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Something not great going on there. I I can't get into that too much, but 2,000 years later, we still talk about Cretans, don't we? That's, That's who we're talking about. The people of Crete were notorious for being not very nice guys. So let's not imagine here that this is a Christian community or even a community that's ready somehow to become Christian. It's a pagan secular island. It's a pagan secular culture. Every bit as resistant to the gospel of Jesus Christ as anyone that we're likely to encounter. So, so it's helpful to bear that in mind. And this helps us to understand Paul's letter because Paul's writing to Titus saying, Titus, this is how to grow a church in a pagan secular culture. Sounds like something we might want to listen into as we try to be God's people in a secularizing culture that we find ourselves in today. What approach does Paul urge Titus, his young apprentice, to take? Well, in broad terms, as I look at the letter, I think he tells Titus to do two things. The first thing uh, he comes to almost immediately, chapter 1, verse 5, he says, appoint godly leaders. And that makes sense. If you're starting a new church, if you were trying to do that in any part of the world where the church didn't exist, I think you'd know intuitively that you needed to get good leaders on the ground, people who could lead small clusters of people. So leadership would be important. The second thing that he um, raises for Titus is to do with teaching people. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. You must teach what's in accordance with sound doctrine. Actually, you'll find that whether he's writing to Titus or to Timothy, Paul's always telling these young guys, you've got to teach, teach the Bible, teach God's word. There is no healthy church where God's word isn't taught. That's a useful reminder to us, I think, in case we see it any other way. Uh, The healthy churches are the place where people are hearing God's word and are open to it and taking it on board. What I want us to focus on just for a few minutes this morning is exactly what it was that Paul wanted Titus to teach. There's a a thread or a theme that runs through this really short book that I want us to try and uh, discern together. So let me flag up a few verses. I'm just going to ask you to to find these verses as we go. Chapter 1, verse 8. 
we're told there that an elder should be one who loves what is good. Chapter 1, verse 16, we're told that rebellious people are detestable, they're disobedient, and they're unfit for doing anything good. Chapter 2, verse 3, sorry. Titus is to teach the older women to teach what is good. Chapter 2, verse 7. Titus, you set the people an example by doing what is good. Chapter 2, verse 14. A people that are eager to do good. Jesus Christ gave himself for us to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind the people to be ready to do what is good. Chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Chapter 3, verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing whatever is good. Did you get it? I hope so. People are smiling. I'm kind of hoping that that means it was... It's, it's not rocket science, this one. As they say, there's some parts of the Bible that are harder to understand, where the, the, the gist of it is, is harder to discern. Paul's letter to Titus, I think, is relatively clear. Here's what Paul wants Titus to teach. Titus, tell the people in Crete to live good lives. That's really interesting. Especially if you know Paul. What is it we know about Paul? We know that Paul fought hard in his time to establish the truth that the gospel is by faith and not of good works so that none of us can boast. Paul's gospel was all about how we're not made right with God by our own actions, by living good lives. So why on earth is he now going on and on and on and on to the people in Crete about living good lives? We thought Paul lived by the gospel, that he would die for the gospel, and here he is talking about good lives. Why is that? It's because Paul knows what the church is for. Paul knows that the church is to bless the world by following Jesus Christ and allowing his beauty to attract people to him. Paul, you've said eight times in one short letter that good lives and being good are important. Why would you say that? Well, look with me at chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is right in the middle of the eight goods. It's between number four and number five. And Paul answers the why question here. He says, Titus, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. Titus, teach the slaves to be good. Why? Well, here it is. So that in every way, they'll make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. When Christian people live good lives, the gospel becomes attractive to a watching world. That's the point that Titus is making here.
When Claire and I got engaged in the summer of 1998, I was living at that point in Vancouver, and she was living at home in Bangor. And we knew that for the six months between our engagement and getting married that we would be apart. And we knew that that was too long. So we decided that we'd like to meet up halfway through. So we had a quick chat about that. Would I fly home for a week during reading week to go and see her? Would Claire come from uh, Bangor, come and see me in Vancouver? In the end, we decided, well, let's do something more creative. And we met up halfway, which was New York. So we went and we spent five wonderful days together in, in Manhattan. And I, I'll always remember the, the week that we had there. So we did all the, the New York kind of stuff. Uh, we went to the Empire State Building. Uh, we jogged in Central Park. We rode on the Staten Island Ferry, took pictures uh, at the Statue of Liberty. Uh, we enjoyed the, the New York diners uh, probably more than we should. And just, just that unique energy that there is in Manhattan. I remember the couple of hours that we spent just one day um, going to Fifth Avenue and Madison Avenue, the, the shopping district in New York. And if you've ever been there, you'll know that that's some of the most exclusive shopping probably in the world. And I remember being struck by the, the, the window displays. Uh, they were like nothing I'd ever seen before. A good window display is, is a real work of art. I've thought about this, and I think it does two things. First thing it does is, whenever you're walking past, and you're not even very interested in, in the shop, it draws your eye. You can't help it. There's something in your peripheral vision that it, it draws you to it. You think you're just walking down the street, and all of a sudden, you're, you're noticing something. So that's the first thing a window display does. But the second thing it does, a, a really good one, is that it, it draws your focus to a focal point. It draws your attention to something that's right at the heart of all of that. They're intended, uh, because they're all about marketing, I guess, they're intended to draw your eye to a particular object and to make that the object of your desire. The lives of Christian people and the lives of the Christian community are the window display that are to make the gospel of Jesus Christ the object of the passerby's desire. The gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus himself, is to become beautiful and attractive. Look again at the second half of verse 10 there. It talks about these employees. They're to have such integrity in the workplace that they make the gospel attractive. This, this word attractive, it's translated from the Greek word cosmeo, our word cosmetics. In the New Testament times, they talked about it particularly in relation to jewels and how you, how you set a jewel to, to let it be seen in all its beauty and all its glory. Folks, the the life of the Christian community is the, the context in which the jewel of the gospel is on display. Our lives and our shared life 
are, are the primary context in which a person who doesn't yet believe in Jesus assesses the, the, the Christian gospel. We've seen that today here in a biblical sense because Paul's telling us that and we're trying to think through the theology of that. But if you think about it, it's, it's entirely true in, ex, in our experience too. Your friends who don't know Jesus and your family and you, if you don't know Jesus yet, we're all making assessments on this message about Jesus Christ and we make the assessment on the basis of what we see in his people. It could be that the members of our church give little or no evidence of God's transforming power in their lives. In that case, we're a poor shop window. It's as though the display's knee-deep in dust. The lighting's bad, the lights are broken, the bulbs are out. The window itself's cracked and hasn't been cleaned in years. No matter how beautiful the gospel is that sits at the center, you can't see it. And your eye wouldn't be drawn to it. But maybe the opposite is true. Maybe in the community there are, are many people and there's a shared life together that, that gives evidence of our salvation. The Holy Spirit's at work. He's making people more like Jesus. And people who are, who are walking by, they don't even think they're interested, but they notice and their eye is drawn, and before long they find the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes the object of their desire. Whenever that's the case, the gospel shimmers and shines like the, the best diamond under the purest lights. David Watson, uh, the influential Anglican minister. I've forced most people in this congregation to read some David Watson at some point on their, their journey in Kirkpatrick. He talks at one point uh, about his experience of being an evangelist, someone who shared the gospel. But whenever he was doing it in the setting where the local church was really living out its purpose, when it was showcasing the jewel of the gospel, he says this, God's love amongst God's people is always the most convincing argument for the truth of the gospel. The most fruitful church-based mission I ever had the privilege of leading was effective for precisely this reason. There was such an obvious demonstration of the love of God within the church and flowing out into the community that all I had to say in effect was, this is what you've seen and heard no wonder they flocked into the kingdom of God. For there it was, right in front of their eyes. Hardly anyone could fail to see it, and a great many believed in the king. Folks, Paul's idea, it's not trapped in time 2,000 years ago. It's not even limited to communities that have uh, world-class leaders like David Watson. I've seen this happen right here in Kirkpatrick Memorial, right before my eyes. I'm thinking of a young woman who arrived here in our congregation a few years ago. Never been part of a church family before. She arrived at a time when she was pregnant 
and not married and arrived with her boyfriend. And I wondered what kind of a welcome she would find in a community like ours. But as soon as she arrived, God was at work in through his word and in the lives of the people. It wasn't long before this young woman was asking me, Christoph, when's the next Christianity Explored course? Normally we are trying to pester people to go on things like Christianity Explored. But here she was asking, when's the next course so that I can go? She's long since come to faith. And just a few weeks ago, I was talking to her about a course that she now leads on um, as a, a leader of a small group. Whenever I asked her about her experience, how did that all work? What happened? What was it like to be a person from outside of the church coming into the church? I, I, I know we'll have said a lot of things, but I can remember one thing she said. She said about the lives of the people. The people just shone. They just shone. Last year, I visited with another young woman and her husband whom I'd first met about three or four years ago as they were starting to be around the church. Neither of them seemed to have a very active faith at that time. And this time, when I visited last year, it was obvious that things were entirely different. The young woman had clearly come to or, or re-entered a, a commitment to Jesus. The young man was certainly journeying hard and fast towards Christ. And I asked him, I said, listen, what's happened here? What's brought about this change? I was, I was hoping that they'd tell me that it was my brilliant preaching. And when they started talking about other things, I just kept waiting. Uh, but never it came. Here's what the young woman told me in an email she recently sent me. Since I first came through the heavy wooden door at Kirkpatrick, I felt comfortable and welcome. It goes far beyond the welcome teams and the words of welcome from the pulpit. Those would start to seem superficial if there wasn't more to it. What I experienced was the everyday kindness, interest, and humanity of the people around me. People I didn't know made the effort to know my name. They came over to me after the service. I was invited to share a cup of coffee. When life threw up unexpected obstacles, there were people who brought food, who offered assistance, who said prayers. These simple gestures made the difference between me walking away from the church and staying to learn more. As I walked this path, I saw in the people around me the Christian I wanted to be. People who just shine. People whose lives touch others and have them saying, I want that too. Let's wrap things up here for this morning. We saw a couple of weeks ago that the, the purpose of the church is to bless the world by following Jesus Christ, showing his beauty and drawing people to him. Today we've asked how an ordinary, everyday bunch of people could do that. And we'll, we'll do it whenever our good lives attract people to Jesus.
Folks, there's a calling here that's big enough to keep all of us occupied for the rest of this life and much, much more. There's an adventure to begin on here to become the person God called you to be and in his power, this, the community that he would have us be together. And I suppose my question for you simply is, are you up for it? Are you ready to go on this journey? I'm going to assume that some of you have said yes to my rhetorical question. And I'm going to pray for us all just now. Let's pray. Gracious Lord God, we thank you for speaking to us in your word this morning. Lord, the penny's beginning to drop. We're beginning to understand what we're for. To show the beauty of Jesus in the world. We're beginning to understand how you want us to live out our purpose, and that is to live lives and to share a life together that showcases the beauty of the gospel. Lord, help us today to give up on any notion of church that doesn't allow us to do this and to do it well. Help us to live out your calling and to find the life in you that Jesus came to give. We pray all this in Jesus' name because we want the world to see how beautiful he is and to come and find him for themselves. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.